Like Paul says, I'm continuing this series that we're doing on the parables. And this morning, I'm speaking on the lost son. And I think it's just one of those stories that it's like most people have heard the story about the son who goes wayward and then he comes back and there's problems at home when he comes back with his elder brother. And we can probably all relate to that in some ways, you know. And, you know, sometimes, have you ever felt like you've lost your marbles? Do you ever feel like that? I remember my mum's mum, who lived to be about 95, and I remember growing up as a child, and she was a sturdy old woman, and she, but she never knew what anyone's name was, and she was like, oh, hello, Raymond, Jeff, Val, uh, Ruth, no, Sarah, I'm like, do you, do you know who I am? You're even calling me men's names in the family, and I was like, she's just, she's lost her marbles, this woman has, and now... I find myself doing it. I've not progressed on to calling my children men's names, but I'm never quite sure what their name is. Sometimes the, dog na- the dog's name even joins in with their name, or I call the dog their names. And I feel like I'm slowly turning into my nan and losing my marbles. And sometimes we lose ourselves, don't we? We can lose who we are. We can hang around with some new friends and think we've got to dress and act like they act. And we lose who we are. Sometimes we get involved in, in an idea or a thought, whatever it is, whether it's political or religious, whatever, and we lose the essence of who we are. And this morning, I want to talk to you about that essence that we have within all of us, that we need to find that again. And the lost son, yeah, maybe it can be primarily about, you know, somebody who doesn't know Jesus coming back, and I'm going to talk about that. But I think sometimes we can all lose a little bit of who we are, and that God wants us to find that essence of who we are in him. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. But before I do that, I just thought it'd be really good to look back over the last few weeks because, like Paul said, Ben started off this series of parables, which is all found in Luke 15, and he started off with the parable of the lost sheep. Yeah? Were most of you here for that? So we had... Bear with me. There were 99 sheep, yeah? Yeah? And one of them was lost. Is that right? Yeah? Help me because I'm not good at maths. I need to look again at what I wrote on my sheet. Yeah? So that makes 100, yeah? Yeah? Good. So that means 1% was lost. Is that right? If I get this wrong, we'll just ignore this bit because maths isn't my forte. So 1% was lost. So the first story that we have in Luke 15, we see that 1% of what this shepherd owned, 1% was lost. And for that 1%, he went and looked for the 1%. Yeah, and then Jesus, Jesus doesn't really pause for breath. He's just like, I'm hitting home with this. I'm, I'm going to tell you the same story again, but in a different way. So if you didn't catch on the first time and get it the first time, I'm just going to repeat myself, but tell you a different story. 
So it's like these trilogies we watch, so like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, they're just really all the same story, but set on different planets and different worlds and stuff, aren't they? They've all got the same sort of thing going on. So in the same way, Jesus is like, I'm going to repeat myself to you. Please understand what I'm trying to say. So last week, there were 10 coins, yeah? Nine was st- still there. One was lost. Now, I know that's still not 1%. That's 10%. Is that right? Oh, good. So a bigger amount is lost. A larger amount is suddenly lost, but it's still possession. It's a woman's possession. Yeah? This week, well, Jesus, he didn't wait for the next week. He just kept going. He was like, you're getting this. You just need to get what I'm trying to say to you. So there were two sons... Suddenly, it goes from 1% that was lost with the lost sheep to 10% was lost with the lost coin. And and every single one, there was still a desperate need to find that was lost. And then it goes to, now this depends on how you look at this parable, to be honest with you, because I would say that actually this much was lost. The father lost it all. And I'll explain that to you as we go along. Sorry if you can't see over there. It's only my bad maths. You're not missing much. But 50%, if we look at it that way, is tragic. It's tragic. There's an advancement in what Jesus is trying to say, he's trying to hit home, he's trying to say to the people who are listening, are you catching what I'm saying? Are you getting the importance of this, that when something is lost, it doesn't matter whether it's a thing, because two of them were things, or whether it's an actual person, it doesn't matter what, the Father's heart is to go after that which is lost. The tragedy of it that built up as he continued to tell these stories, and the shock element that Jesus adds, especially into this last one, and if you've never noticed why it's such a shocking story, I will explain to you as we go along, because actually it's downright disgusting in Jewish culture what this father does, and he shouldn't have been doing it, but because of his heart and his passion for the one, or actually the two, that were lost, because both sons were lost, and what he does to fetch them and bring them home is absolutely shameful. So the father went to shameful lengths to find the sons that were lost. And Jesus, being the son of God, was sent to shameful lengths to find me and you. He was sent to the shameful length of dying, stark naked, might I add, on a cross. It's shameful. But God so loved you, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to go to a shameful length so that you, yes you, could come home to Father. And that's what this story is about. The tragedy of the lost son and the lengths that the Father goes Let's read it, shall we? Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. 
And I'm reading from the Good News Version of the Bible. And it's a little bit long, so just bear with me. It says, Jesus went on to say, so he's already said twice, and now he's just saying again, just in case you missed it. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger one said to him, Father, give me my share of the property now. So the man divided his property between his two sons. After a few days, the younger son sold his part of the property and left home with the money. He went to a country far away where he wasted his money in reckless living. He spent everything he had. Then a severe famine spread over that country and he was left without a thing. So he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him out to his farm to take care of the pigs. Can I just remind you that Jewish people have a real issue with pigs? It's like they're unclean animals. They don't eat them, they don't like them, they don't work with them, they don't keep them. That's just an aside. He wished he could fill himself with the bean pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything to eat. At last he came to his senses and said, All my father's hired workers have more than they can eat, and here I am about to starve. I will get up and go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired workers. So he got up and started back to his father. He was still a long way from home when his father saw him. God sees you. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how far away you are or how far away you've been. God sees you and is looking for you to come home. His heart was filled with pity and he ran, threw his arms around his son and kissed him. Father, the son said, I have sinned against God and against you. I am no longer fit to be called your son. But the father called his servants, hurry, he said, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. Then go and get the prized calf and kill it. And let's celebrate with a feast. For this son of man was dead and now he is alive. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the feasting began. In the meantime, the eldest son was out in the field. On his way back, when he came close to the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come back home, the servant answered, and your father has killed the prize calf because he got him back safe and sound. The elder brother was so angry that he would not go into the house, so his father came out and begged him to come in. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've worked for you like a slave, and I've, dis- I've never disobeyed your orders. What have you given me? Not even a goat for me to have a feast with my friends. But this son of yours wasted all the property on prostitutes, and then he came back home. You killed the price car for him. My son, the father answered, you are always here with me, and everything I have is yours. And we had to celebrate and be happy, because your brother was dead, but now he is alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. And you know, we can look at that and we can think, that older brother needs to sort himself out. And we can look at it and think, wow, what a wonderful father that he ran and hugged his son. But Jesus is talking to first century Jews here. So how we understand it is not how they understood it. 
So if we don't understand it how they understood it, then we actually miss the purpose of what Jesus is trying to say. So this morning, and I'm sure I won't get it all right, and I'm sure I'll miss things out, but this morning, I want to help you to understand this parable from a first century mindset so you catch what Jesus is trying to say to us. Because I think if we can do that, then there's hidden depths within these parables that we miss so often. So the first thing... I want you to think about is the view of the father. It all comes down to the two boys' view of the father. They had differing views of him throughout the parable. And you know, Jewish tradition as a whole practices and encourages forgiveness. That's, that's part of it. It encourages forgiveness. It encourages, you know, the day of atonement where everything goes back to where it should be. It encourages that goodness and that kindness. But there are also things hidden within Jewish tradition that counteract some of those things. So let's look at the beginning. Because the, the youngest son goes to the father and he says, give me your money. I want my share of your money. Now, the younger brother being the younger brother would have had a third of the property allocated to him because the elder brother, as Jewish tradition says, had a double portion. So he would have had two-thirds. Now, if you look at what it says in verse 12, it says, so the man divided his property between his two sons. It doesn't say he gave the younger son his share. He said the man divided his property between his two sons. Both sons got their inheritance that day. And very often we miss it. That day, both sons got their inheritance. And there's a law that's, and I might say this wrong, I do apologise, Mishnaic law, which is basically, in Jewish tradition, where the father could execute his will before his death. It was something that they did at times. For whatever reason. But if the father did that, then the father still had legal rights to make use of the estate. So why it would make sense that the father was still there and could say, go and get the fatted calf. Go and do these things. But actually, the estate that he lived on was still that estate. Because it says the younger son sold his share of the property. Whoever he sold his share to could not claim that share until the father died. So the father still lived and operated within the whole of what he had, although the two-thirds belonged to the elder son and the one-third belonged to whoever the younger son had sold to. Does this make sense? And it's important that we understand this because it then makes sense of why some things you just think, I don't get that. Well, actually, as we work through Some of the ways that the sons both thought were completely wrong within what had gone on. The other thing that it's really important to notice is in Jewish tradition, the eldest son was often there to help deal with any family issues. He was often there to be a mediator in family issues. And when the younger son came to the father and basically said, I wish you were dead, give me your money. Because that was in essence what he was saying, drop dead dad. Please die, I want my inheritance. And we think, whoa, this younger son, what's he like? The elder son was there, and as tradition 
states he should have been a mediator in that family difficulty. The eldest son at this point had every right to step in and say, brother, no, this isn't right. Let's, let's, let's look at father in the right way. Let's love our father. Don't say drop dead to him. Instead, what does the, young, what does the elder brother do? He don't do anything. What does he say? He don't say anything. What does he do? He accepts the division of the property and accepts the double portion. He says and does nothing. And we need to see and understand this and this law that was in place and what actually went on. So we suddenly begin to realize that actually where we look at the youngest son and we think... Oh, what a naughty boy he is. Suddenly, we look at the elder and think, what's going on with him as well? Normally, we get to the end and say, oh, wow, the younger one's come back. And oh, what a naughty one the older one is at the end. But actually, at the beginning, what is going on with both of them? Both of them are, in effect, saying to the father, drop dead, dad, we want your cash. That's what they're saying. Their view of the father was that the father was a bank. And they wanted the money from the father to outwork and live what they wanted to do. The younger, in his foolishness, wanted to go and just blow it all wherever he wanted to go. The elder, in his foolishness, stayed where he was, but never actually enjoyed the double portion he'd been given. Because when we read later on, he says, I've never even had a goat and celebrated with my friends. But it was already his. It was already his because his father had separated it out. Both of them were living with a wrong view of the father. Both of them were living in discontentment. Both of them were living with this issue that the father stood in their way. Instead of the father being there to be their father. They had a wrong view of their dad. I remember when I was growing up and was probably, I don't know, about seven. And I used to say to people... and. I used to say to him, well, my dad told me that when he was growing up, he was best friends with Cliff Richard. And so I used to tell everyone at school, why on earth in the early 80s, this was a cool thing to say to anybody, it's beyond me. If you don't know who Cliff Richard is, Google him. He did like, we're all going on it. There you go. That's what he did. And he sang loads of songs in the 60s. So in the 80s, I used to tell all my mates, my dad grew up with Cliff Richard. Because I thought that was a cool thing. <laughs> that just shows me up, doesn't it? And then about, I don't know, 10 years ago, I said to my dad, Dad, remember when you used to tell me you grew up with Cliff Richard? I never told you that, said my dad. And I am convinced, still to the depths of me, that my dad had told me that he grew up with Cliff Richard. But my dad insists that he never said it. Now, my dad is a, he's a bit of a monkey and he's a bit of a kidder. So I don't know whether I made it up or whether he did actually tell me and he was kidding me and he's still kidding me now. And I'm really not quite sure and I'm a little bit confused. But that's the joy of my dad and his sense of humour. But why am I telling you this? Because, well, my dad never actually did grow up with Cliff Richard. This much I do know. He never did. But I used to think he did. And it was a wrong view of him. 
And I used to tell other people, oh, my dad grew up with Cliff Richard, because I thought, wow, my dad's so cool, he grew up with Cliff Richard. <laughs> just, just go with me. Just Somebody must like Cliff Richard in here. Somebody shouting yes. Come on, Janet. Come on, you, Janet's going to get this one if none of the rest of you do. It's, huh? He was a Justin Bieber of the day, wasn't he? Not a Chesney Hawks. I just don't know why I'm telling it you now. I've just lost the plot. But I thought my dad had grown up with Cliff Richard, so I thought he was cool because of this. But I've had to understand that my dad didn't grow up with Cliff Richard, and I've had to learn to love my dad because he's my dad, not because of what he's got or who he grew up with or some magnificent thing. These boys wanted their dad because of his money, because of the inheritance that they could get. They'd got a wrong view of the father. What's your view of your Father in heaven? When do you go to him? Do you go to him when you need something? Do you go to him when you want something? Do you go to him when you're in need? Or do you just love the fact that he's there and that you can just share what he's got with him? I think the first thing we need to decide is what our view is of God. And this story shows the amazing compassion and the love that the Father has as he reaches out to these lost ones. And today, God himself wants you to have a shift in thinking from thinking that God is just there to provide your needs or to go to when you've got a problem. But God is there and wants to share everything with you, wants to just be with you. We'll go to any length so that you can come back to him. God wants your mindset to shift this morning to a whole different way of looking at him as God, your father, who loves you, who sent his son to die for you so that he could be near you, who was watching for you and watching for you and watching for you. Those of you who've got older children will perhaps know the the difficulty of when they go out at night or go out in the car and you're like, do I go to bed? Do I wait up? Do I go to bed? Do I wait up? My mum would never go to sleep until me and my sister were safe at home. And I used to think, get a life, mum. Go to sleep. But her heart was like, she wanted to know that we were safe. She wanted to know that we were home. Her love for us, and maybe a little bit of OCD and anxiety as well, thrown in the mix for good measure. But she wanted to know that we were there safe. God, your Father, wants you home safe with him. Wants to provide for you and bless you, yes. But primarily, it's about the love relationship that he wants with you. That he wants you home. That he wants to run to you and hold you. What's your view of the Father this morning? And, you know, the next two things that I want to look at before we finish is two things that the Father actually does with both sons in looking to bring them home. And the first thing that he does, and he probably does some other things as well, but these are the two things that I've picked out The first thing the father does is the father moved. Let's look at the youngest son. And some of you probably heard this before. Again, we're going back to Jewish tradition. When the youngest son came to himself and came home, it says the father was watching for him. And while he was still a long way off, 
Just hold on to that thought. Because Jewish tradition says this. There's a ceremony called Kezazar, I think you pronounce it. If you'd like spellings for these, please come and see me after and then you can find them and Google them. And basically what it means is if a member of the community went outside of that community, maybe they intermarried with Gentiles, maybe they went and spent money with Gentiles, they went out into a Gentile community, they didn't stay within the Jewish community, it was severely frowned upon. And what they would do, the whole community actually would wait for this person to come back. The whole community is watching for this lost son. And if a one of them sees him, they're going to perform this ceremony. And this ceremony goes like this. They would take a pot and they would bring the pot to the edge of the community. They wouldn't even let the lost son back into the community. They would bring the pot and they would break the pot in front of the one that had gone astray, so the lost son. And when they broke the pot, they would say to this person that you have broken relationship not only with your family, but you have broken relationship with the Jewish community. And therefore, we banish you and we disown you from this community. You are no longer welcome here as a Jew. And so, not only was the father watching for this boy, the whole community was watching for this boy. And they were waiting with the pot. And... Tradition says that the mother of this individual could go and plead mercy for them and plead. But the father of the individual was not to go to the ceremony. They were to stay home because the father was the only one who had authority to bring change. So the mother could go and cry and weep and wail and beg for mercy. But the father had to stay home while this ceremony was performed. And so Jews listening to this story would be thinking, aye, aye, we know what's going to happen in this story. They're going to get the pot. They're going to perform the ceremony when this boy comes back. It doesn't matter how repentant he is. That's what they're going to do. They're going to banish him from the community. So when Jesus tells this story, can you imagine the aghast in those people who were listening to this story of, what? What just happened? The, the father didn't stay home. The mother didn't go and plead for me. No pot was broken when they're coming back of this child. So everyone listening would just be like, really? So Jesus tells of this father who breaks Jewish tradition and says, actually, you may have this tradition that says do this thing, but actually the bigger picture of God is atonement, is forgiveness, and so I'm going to show you a different way of living. And it's really interesting to listen what the son says while he's sitting in that pig pen. That I'll go back and I'll say, I'll work for you as a slave. Because he knew in going back that that pot would be broken and he would no longer be acceptable in that society. So the only way that he could go back was to go back and be a slave. He knew that. He understood that. That wasn't the depth of his repentance that we so often think, wow. No, that was the reality of going back. So what does the father do? And this is where it hits a whole other level of Jewish people listening to this story going, what? The father, it says, in verse 20, and he ran 
And he ran. Jewish men do not run. Because Jewish men wear long dresses. They're not called dresses. I'm sure they have a proper name that makes them sound unladylike. But Jewish men traditionally do not run. Jewish men certainly do not show their legs. You can Google this. They do not show their legs. You do not hitch up your garments as a Jewish man and show your legs. But let's be quite clear and honest. If you wear something long and you want to run, you're going to have to hitch it up. So he's gone and got his, whatever it is he's got on, picked it up and them legs are out. Them bad boys are on show for the whole community. They've never seen the light of day. And them bad boys are saying, check me out. I'm on show. I am breaking tradition. I am breaking the culture of this time. Because actually, if I don't get there first, my son is not going to be able to come back into this community. It's not going to be able to be my son. So he hitches up his skirts and he runs. Stuff Jewish culture, stuff Jewish tradition, stuff everything else. That is my son and I want him to come home. This is the father who wants you to come home. This is the father who runs to you no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what pig pen you've sat in, because that lad would have stunk of pigs. Have you ever been near a pig? They're stinky. The stinky gets on you. You then smell of pig stink. So this adds insult to injury. This man is running with his legs on show, with his skirt hitched up to a boy that smells of pigs, which are very shameful in Jewish culture. And he's running past the man with the pot who is thinking, I'm going to do one of these ceremonies. These are my favourites. And he's running past him. And the man with the pot's... I'm just, this is a bit of ad lib. The man with the pot's thinking, aye, aye, what's going on? So he starts running. And they're all running. The whole flipping community's running because half of them want to break a pot and say, get out of this community. You have shamed yourself. And the father's like, I'm going to shame myself even more more than this boy has shamed me because my heart of love for him is calling him home. The father moved. The father moved in a way that was so shocking to first century Jews listening to this story that they must have thought, what? Seriously? This is the father God? What a God, what a God that shames himself, that lays everything else aside just to bring back the one. There's a guy called Tony Campolo and he tells this story. He's on an airplane and it's an internal flight, I think, in the States. And I apologise if you've heard it before. And he gets on this plane and sitting in front or to the side of him, I forget, is a mother and a daughter. And this little girl's got, I don't know, let's say a white dress on. Um, I can't remember the exact details of it. But she's got something pristine on. And she sits on the seat and all he can hear her saying is, I'm going to see daddy, I'm going to see daddy, I'm going to see daddy. And he thinks, how exciting. She's obviously going to see her dad. Well, no, she doesn't show up. I'm going to see daddy, I'm going to see daddy all the way on the plane till we get there. It's a long flight. Oh, mum tries to shut her up and gives her a load of cookies. 
I'm going to see one daddy. I'm going to chocolate all smeared around her face. And he tells this story and he says, four, I just keep thinking, one, shut up. And two, this girl's face is covered in chocolate and biscuits. And he's thinking, oh, daddy's going to be pleased to see you. And it's spilling on her top. And as they come down to land, she starts looking a bit green. The excitement and the cookies have got the better of her. And she has to make use of the sick bag on the seat in front, only she doesn't make use of the sick bag on the seat in front. And she is covered. She is covered. A whole nother level of cookie dough, that is, Paul. She is covered in chocolate and in biscuits and in all that other stuff that's come out of it. And he's thinking, I've got to watch this. I've got to see what daddy does. But she still carries on. I'm going to see daddy. I'm going to see daddy. And they get off the flight and they come out and he follows him and he makes sure he's close enough to see. And he sees who must be the dad. And he sees the child running. And he sees the father. And normally you'd be like, oh, my suit. Oh, <laughs> um, let's get you a little wet wipe first. That would be my response. Grab the wet wipes, wet wipes, and they're ready. Get them out of your parenting belt. Every mother's lethal weapon, the wet wipe. But no, this father does not understand the beauty of wet wipes. And instead, he kneels, arms wide open, and this sick, covered chocolate, covered biscuit, covered child runs into his arms and cakes all her mess all over him. But what does he do? He holds it and he kisses it. He didn't care about the mess on it. Your father doesn't care about the mess of where you've been. All your father wants to do is to grab you and hold you. The father moved. So how did he move for the older son then? We see the same again. The elder son comes back from the field and he asks one of the servants what's going on. And they explain to him that his younger brother's come back. And that his father's done all these things. And he refuses to go in. So what does the father do? I know sometimes one of the best parenting skills they often say is, just ignore them, they'll come round. Just ignore them, ignore their tantrum, ignore what they're doing, they'll come round, they'll come out of it. This father doesn't do that. He leaves the celebration and he moves. He moves again. And he goes out to the elder son and he goes to talk to him and ask him and show him that he loves him just as much as he loves the younger son. There's no difference in the action that is taken. The action that he takes is the same. He moved to his younger son to save him. And in the same way, he moves to his elder son to save him. The father moved. You know, and from Genesis... All the way through the Bible, we see God move to meet those who are lost. We see him move. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But can I just say this? It is never too late to come to yourself. It is never too far that you've gone that you can return. There is never so much anger and frustration pent up within you that you can relent And come back home. And the father moves to you this morning. 
Whether you find yourself lost because of how you've been living, whether you find yourself lost because of your frustration and anger with church or with relationships, no matter where you find yourself lost, the Father this morning wants to move towards you and say, child, come home. Child, I love you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how you've acted. It doesn't matter how cross you've been. Child, come home. The father moved. And then the father does this. The father speaks. My point is, the father spoke. So let's go back to the younger son. We saw how the father moved for the younger son, yes? Let's see what he spoke. And I think it's really interesting because the son had got this line all sort of worked up. And you do, don't you? If you've got to have a conversation with someone and you think, oh, I don't know how this is going to go, you sort of run it through your head. How many times? How am I going to say this? How am I, how am I going to do these things? How am I going to, how am I going to t- tell my mum that I've had a tattoo and I think she might really shout at me? How am, I, how am I going to do these things? I just went and hid at my sisters, not that I'm endorsing that. <laughs> but when you've got something to say, you sort of rehearse it and go over it and you're like, oh, what do I do? So the son had gone and he got this whole message rehearsed. You know, I'm willing to be a slave. He didn't, he, the father didn't even let him get to that. What does it say the father does? The father actually doesn't even speak to him. The father doesn't speak to him. You look at it, it doesn't say a word to him. But it says this in verse 22. But the father called his servants. The father speaks to everyone else. The father doesn't speak to the son. The movement was enough. The movement saved him. The movement said it all. But what now needs to happen, when you've been living a life of shame, and when you come back and you feel shameful and dirty and don't feel like you're good enough and don't feel like you belong, you need the Father to speak to everyone else and say, this is my son. This is my son. This is my daughter. You don't need the Father to speak to you. He spoke everything when he hitched his skirt off and bore his legs for the whole community to see. But you need the Father to speak to everyone else who wants to judge you, who wants to say, look what you did, who wants to put you down, who wants to say, oh, should you really be here? So he speaks to his servants in front of the whole community and tells them, get the best robe, put a ring on his finger and shoes on his feet, all symbols of sonship. And the Father needs to tell us sometimes, church, The father needs to tell us about those lost ones who come in. This is my child. Don't look down on them. Don't think they're worse. Don't think anything less of them. This is my child, church. When the lost and the broken, when those start coming in, when people who we think have lived lives that we would never have dreamt of living, God wants us to know this is my son. This is my daughter. The father spoke. And he corrected those around who may not accept him. Romans 8 verse 1 in the Passion says this. So now the case is closed. There remains no accusing voice of condemnation against those who have joined a life union with Jesus, the anointed one. The case is closed. If you make a choice to come back to Father, the case is closed. The end, it is finished, the case is closed. There are no more accusing voices. The father's voice is louder than them all. The father's voice that says, get a robe, get a ring, get some shoes, is louder than any accusing voice that can come your way. The father's voice is the beginning 
in the end of the conversation. The father spoke. So with the older son, let's look again. So we saw the father moved and went out to him. And then we see the father speaks again. But this time he doesn't speak to the servants or the community. Because the servants and the community know that he's his son. They know that he's been there. They know that he's never left. They know that he's his son. He's not a wayward son. He may have had wrong opinions of his father. He may not have helped within the family relationships to bring reconciliation. But he's always been there and always been a legitimate son. So he didn't need to tell the servants. He didn't need to tell the community because they all know that. The person who didn't know was the son himself. The person who missed it was the son himself. And he needed the father's voice to speak into his life. My son, the father answered. Isn't it interesting how he calls him my son? Because he clearly doesn't know that he is. My son, the father answered, you are always here with me and everything I have is yours. Sometimes we forget that everything, everything that God has is ours. Everything, the peace, the reassurance, the love, the healing, everything is ours if we choose to know that we're his sons and daughters. He spoke directly to him. And I think today God wants to speak directly to some of us and remind us, my child, my son, my daughter, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You know, and I said before about From Genesis to the end of the Bible, we see that God moved. But following that, we also see that he spoke. This pattern that Jesus unveils in the parable is a pattern that moves throughout the whole of the Bible. In Genesis 3, we see with Adam that God moved and walked in the garden. And then he spoke to Adam after the fall. We see in Moses that God moved with the burning bush and then spoke to Moses afterwards to bring the lost son home. We see again in Job, when he's lost in his sickness and his distress, that God moves in the whirlwind and then speaks to him and corrects him and brings again the lost son home. We see in Mark 5, when there's um, the girl who died, that Jesus moves and touches her and then he speaks. Jesus brings the lost one home. We see with Paul on the road to Damascus, Amy spoke about it this morning, the dinner and kids in Acts 9, that God moved, there was a blinding light, and then Jesus spoke directly to Paul, bringing the lost one home. Adam was lost, Moses, Job, Paul, they were all lost, and God moved, and then he spoke to bring that lost one home. It's the same pattern that we see. God moved when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And he spoke to us through him to bring our lost lives back to him. 
The Father has been patterning a story and piecing it together throughout the history of the Bible right to this day that said God will move for you and speak to you to bring you home wherever you are and whatever you need. Jeremiah 3, verse 12. And if the band would like to come and join me, says this. Therefore go and give this message to Israel. This is what the Lord says. O Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. God wants to call us home. God wants to call us back to him. God's message from Genesis to Revelation through Jesus' life and death on a cross has been the same. When you are lost, I will do whatever it takes that you can be found. God calls us back. God calls us to come back to our senses and return to him. God calls us to find a God-like compassion and feeling again and accept and love our brothers and sisters in Christ no matter where they've been or what they've done. God calls us to realise that everything he has is ours. You know, we've just got to realise that when shame overwhelms us and when anger consumes us or whatever it is, that just then the Father, just then the Father, just then the Father came running. Just then the Father comes out of the celebration. Just then the Father moves to you and says, come home, child. Parables take us on a collision course with destiny. And they invite us to play out the last scene in our life because it actually stops and you don't actually know what happens with the elder brother. It doesn't show you his response. Does he go into the house or does he not? I don't know. Jesus doesn't say. But to that first century Jew, they understood why it had stopped at that point because Jesus was sending out an invitation. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? The Father has moved towards you. The Father has spoken words of affirmation to you. What are you going to do?